0: from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. This morning, uh, we are going to start uh, a journey through the Gospel of John. I was looking back through uh, sermon calendars. I have a, a sheet of paper and it tells me what sermon I preached what day in the morning and evening. I've got 14 years of those for Red Bait now. It's kind of hard to believe. But as I was flipping back through there, I noticed that um, we've, we've done a lot. We've done some prophets. We've done some Old Testament and New Testament. And we've done Revelation inadvertently twice. Um, But one of the things that we have not gone through is a gospel. We've done portions. and In fact, I think uh, with this past year preaching Matthew's uh, Easter narrative, I think we've gone through every gospel account of Easter, but we haven't been through a complete and total gospel. And I've just been drawn to the gospel of John. I think we all are kind of drawn there. So we are going to study through the gospel of John over the next... Weeks, uh, month, and maybe the rest of the year. We'll see how long it takes us to get through it. So with that in mind, if you'll take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 16. All right, Matthew chapter 16. And I know what all of you are thinking, and yeah, I did that on purpose just just because I could. Matthew chapter 16, and you will see why we're going there in just a moment, you'll see the connection. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when, the Jew, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, we've talked about these verses before. He is in the, the northern part of Israel, up above the Sea of Galilee, where if you looked at a map today, uh, you would call it uh, the Golan Heights. And here in Caesarea Philippi, we have talked about this kind of mountainous, and in one of the mountains, uh, they have carved out niches where they would place false gods to worship. And so with that as the backdrop, Jesus looks at his disciples and basically says, hey, what is the word on the street about me? What, what is everybody saying about me? And they said in verse 14, 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and other, Jeremiah's, or one of the prophets. So the disciples look and say, here's the word. They think you are Elijah, which, if you're following through the Gospel of Matthew at this time, Elijah is dead. So they think Elijah has come back to life. All right. If, if you're not Elijah, or excuse me, John the Baptist is dead. I meant to say John the Baptist. Elijah is, is not dead. He, he went up in a chariot. But John the Baptist at this point is dead, and so they think maybe John the Baptist reincarnated. Maybe you're Elijah, meaning the prophet, coming back before the Messiah. Maybe you are Jeremiah, and one of the rabbinical teachings of the time was that Jeremiah and Isaiah would return before the Messiah. Maybe you're one of the, pro- or one of the other prophets. Maybe you're just a prophet. Basically, they're looking and saying, Jesus, the word on the street is you're a prophet. That, that's how the people see you? All right. Then verse 17. It says, all right, no, excuse me, verse 15. So he said to them, all right, but who do you say that I am? Okay, we, we've heard the word on the street, but the really important question is not who does everybody else say that I am, but you've been with me now. Who do you say I am? And verse 17 or 16 I, I can't read the day I need to get bigger glasses excuse me verse 16 Simon Peter speaks up all right Peter responds you are the Christ the son of the living god you're the Christ the son of the living god everybody on the street says that you're a prophet coming before the messiah but you're not you are the messiah you're not a prophet coming Beforehand, you are the Christ, the one promised to redeem us and take us to heaven with you. You you are the one. They're still looking at you as a prophet, thinking somebody's gonna come after, it, but no, you're the one. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Okay, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And I know again what you're thinking: why are we going to the back of the book? Well, with John, I think you have to start here. Because when John writes, he does something unique that no other biblical writer does. He tells us exactly why he wrote his book. There is another book in the Bible where the author says, I write this so that you will dot, 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 dot. Moses doesn't do that. None of the prophets do that. None of the other gospel writers, Paul doesn't do that. No one says, this is why I'm writing. John does. And he says in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Where did you just hear that? And that by believing, you may have life in His name. The reason I wanted to go to Matthew 16 first and then to John chapter 20 is in Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do you say I am? And Peter gives that one sentence answer, correct? You are Christ, the son of the living God. That's the answer. And Jesus says, you're right. God revealed this to you, Peter. That is the answer. But that's all we get. Peter doesn't then go on and and explain why or how. He just says, you are. Jesus says, you're right. John chapter 20, John writes, I'm writing all this so that you will believe exactly what Peter said. Basically, the gospel of John is an entire gospel answering the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say I am. That is why John writes his gospel. So that we will know who Jesus is. Why Jesus came. What his purpose is. And so from the very beginning of John to the very end, he writes with that purpose in mind. To lead us to the truth That he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that through him we may have life. That is why John writes his gospel. And it's foundational for us to understand that this morning before we go through it from the very beginning to the end. Because if we understand why he's writing, then as we read through it and as we study, we, we can always connect it back to the purpose of the book. So this morning, I want us to look at why he writes. And he tells us very clearly that he writes that we may believe. That's the first thing he says. He says, but these are written so that you may believe. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. Have you ever noticed that humanity as a whole is a believing people? We really are. We're a, a, a believing people. And, and not just believing in something, and I, I feel sorry, I, please forgive me, this illustration was written before everybody fell. <laughs> so I, I apologize, but that was my illustration. It, it, in our believing, it's not like gravity, right? Okay? We, we understand, we believe in gravity, and I use that because we all understand how gravity works. We all understand that if we're walking and then we trip, gravity is going to take over and we're going to be on the ground. We understand that. We believe in gravity. It it, it works. We might not understand the exact scientific formulation. We might not understand all the forces that are involved, but we understand if we trip, we fall. We believe that. We understand that. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a belief that is within all man to believe in something higher than themselves. Everybody has a belief system. A lot of people say, well, I'm an atheist. I have no belief system. Or, or, or you know, it's like, yes, yes you do. You, you just don't want to call it that. But everybody wants to believe in something higher than them. That's why we have all these philosophies. That's that's why we have all these uh, ways of interpreting the world, because we want to see that there's something above us that makes this life on this earth, for however long we're here, make a little bit more sense. So that's why everybody is so willing to believe. And it crosses all history and all ethnicities. You can't find a place in time or a people where they don't believe That there is something or something or someone that is higher, that is above them, smarter, stronger, whatever. We are a believing people. And John uses that fact to draw us into believing. This is so important for John. The word believe, believes, believe, believing. So the, the, the verb, not the word belief, which we'll get to in just a minute, but the word believe in all the tenses of it, is used in the Bible 289 times. Okay? Of those 289, 241 are in the New Testament. The Gospel of John contains 100 of them. Right? I mean, that that is... His point. He, he starts off in John 1, 7. He gets seven verses in before he, he uses the word talking about believing. He says in verse 7, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. There it is. John starts off. Why is John writing? Because he wants you to believe. He's going to make it over and over and over and over Again. But we have to understand what he means by the word believe. Because we use the word in many different ways, right? We talked about gravity. We believe in gravity. Someone told us that gravity exists. We can see it when we drop a ball or when we fall. We understand that there is an experiential belief. There's a history belief, somebody taught us something, it's like, all right, I believe that, but I might be willing to change my mind if other facts come to light. But that is, and there's the belief where we use it for what we really mean, I think. Well, I believe it might rain later today. What, what do you mean? It means, I think it might. And John is not talking about any of those. What John is talking about when he uses the word believe is he wants us to understand that to believe it must be rooted in something. There's got to be something firm that we anchor our believing into. It can't stand on its own. It can't just be experiential. It can't just be a head knowledge. It can't just be, well, I think. It's got to be firmly attached to something to the point that it will drive you to act, right? Think about bridges, right? You, you go to a bridge, go to, what is it, Virginia Dare Bridge down at the Outer Banks or the New River Gorge Bridge up in West Virginia. And you come to the edge of that bridge in your car and you're, 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 you're right there. And you can believe that the bridge will hold you. You can believe that you're going to make it across the bridge, right? That's all well, fine, and good. But until you do what? Until you push the gas pedal and you drive onto the bridge, you're not really believing in the bridge. You've not acted upon your belief to do something. It takes a little bit more than just the intellectual knowledge that, hey, I've been told and and thousands of other cars and people are streaming past me left and right to go around me because I'm stopped trying to figure out if I believe in this bridge enough to carry me across it. Right? I hate bridges so bad. Uh, I think I shared this story. We, We crossed over from Detroit into canada one time and, and that bridge was horrible i hated that bridge well i found out that there was a tunnel coming back and the only thing that is more frightening than a rundown bridge is a rundown tunnel they were working on the tunnel and i was just like okay i should have swam um yeah it was scary i was so happy to see daylight on the other side even if it was detroit um you know So that's why John is, is, is writing. He's not writing that we just have an intellectual believism. He's not writing that we have an experiential believism. He's writing that as we read and we believe that we are going to act on what he is pushing us to believe. There's an act of believing that John is pushing us towards based on our internal desire we have that is already within us to believe. And so when John writes, he writes, I want you to believe because I know it's there. And at the same time, he says, I want that belief, the believing that you have specifically in Jesus Christ. He writes that we may believe, and then he says two things. He says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John writes that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Our believing then is now rooted in Jesus. That's why John writes. And we're going to see this over and over and over again. And John does this by using prepositions after the word believe. He links it continually throughout his gospel. Right? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world... That whoever believes, what's the next two words? In him. That's what John does. He says, it's not that you just believe, but you've got to believe in him. Verse 18, John three eighteen says, believe in the name. He always connects it back to Jesus. That the only true place for us believing is to place our faith in Jesus Christ. That is the right expression of believing. And that's why John says, Look, he is the Christ. Now, I always just, I think I've said this uh, many, many times, but I just, every time we look at this, I got to say it Christ is not his last name. All right? It's not like, you know. You, he could be. He could have been Jesus. Somebody else. Okay, Christ is a title. It is who he is, and it means Messiah. It means Messiah. When when and John again, he immediately picks up on this. John one forty one says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to Simon, so when Andrew goes to get Peter and he looks at Peter, what he says is, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. We have found the one who has been spoken ab- about. See, Matthew 16, everybody just thought he was a prophet. The disciples said, no, you're the Messiah. John writes, no, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And that word Messiah is rooted in in the Old Testament, and it means anointed one. The one specifically chosen and set apart by God to fulfill certain promises, right? So we see Samuel. Think about Samuel. What does he do? He goes and he does what to David? He anoints David king. He sets David apart to be king of Israel. That was what his job and his function was to do. The prophets were anointed and set apart by God to go and preach the message that God gives them to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord, right? The prophets say, "Thus says the Lord." They have been anointed to speak for God, and Jesus was anointed as not just another one of a who has been anointed, not another David, not another prophet, not another king, but he was anointed as the anointed the Messiah, the one, the promised one that all the Old Testament prophecies speak about. He was the one. And I think sometimes for us, as we read through our Bible, it gets a little muddled and, and we don't see it because we've divided the Bible up into these nice 66 books and these chapters and, we ver- and these verses. And, and we, we fail to remember that from the very beginning to the very end, it, it's really about one story. It, it's God's story and it is a story of redemption and how God in his great love redeems his fallen creation. And the whole story of the Old Testament is pushing us forward to see that fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That he is the Messiah spoken about of the Old Testament. He's the one. Turn back to Luke chapter 4 just real quick. Luke chapter 4 and the gospel of Luke this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So down in verse 16. Following the temptations, and it says, And he came to Nazareth, meaning Jesus, where he had been brought up, and as, he, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Now just think about this for a minute. I just, I'm just going to pick on you just for a minute. If I gave you a Bible with no book names and no chapter verses, chapters or verses, would you be able to turn to the book of Isaiah? I don't even know if I would be. All right. And then go to the, hey, let's not even go to Isaiah. Would you be able to find John three sixteen? I mean, you know, so let, let's understand, uh, again, <clears throat> how, how the Old Testament was, was kept. The, the chapters and verses, thank God that we have them, but they are not inspired. And so he unrolls, and he's about to read, and he reads Isaiah 61 through 2, and he adds Isaiah 58, uh, 58 6 at the end. But this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he reads that, he says, look, I'm the anointed one. I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one spoken of in all of the Old Testament. I am one. This is now fulfilled in your sight. Today, this scripture. Today, right now, as I am reading this to you, he says to the synagogue, it is being fulfilled. That must have been pretty cool to be in the synagogue that day. Right? I mean, to say, in your sight, as you are watching it, scripture is, is being fulfilled. Because I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. And when you look at what he reads and he talks about his works there, look at where he says we are, right? You can find where we are at the end of the sentence, right? Because he says, look, he says, we're poor, we're, we're broken hearted, We're captive. We're blind. We are oppressed, which leaves us outside the favor of the Lord. He says, That's where you are. That's where we all were. And Jesus says, But I come now to undo all of that. The story that we just talked about, the story that that the overarching story is God's redemptive plan to redeem his people. Jesus comes and says, here's where you are. This is what you need to be redeemed from. And in your sight today, Scripture is being filled. Why? Because I have come, and I'm going to proclaim the good news to you. You're poor spiritually. You're down. I'm coming now to proclaim that there is good news, that you can be removed from that poor spiritual state. He says, I've come. You know, Sin is is, is going to to break your, your heart. It's going to impoverish you. And I've come to lift you up out of that poverty. Sin strangles you and ensnares you. And he says, I've come to set you free from the snare of sin. Sin breaks your heart and leaves us in straw. And he says, I've, I've come to, to, to mend your heart. Sin makes you blind to the realities of what it's doing to your life. I've come to to remove the blindness so that you can see. And so as John says, so that you can see that he is Jesus, he is the Christ, the Son of God. He says, then you see that and you understand who he is. Then proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. You are no longer outside of God's favor. You are now inside of God's favor. Because I have come to do what I had been anointed to do that I am the Messiah who has come to redeem you. I am the Messiah of Isaiah 61. I am the Messiah of Isaiah 58. I am the Messiah of all the Old Testament. John says, he is Jesus, the Christ. And then he goes on and says, the Son of God. And when he adds that old, one of the reasons he is doing that is because people at the time were looking for the Messiah to come. Expecting a Messiah to come, but did not think that he would have that much communion with the Father. Surely God would anoint him, but that's about it. John says, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. Everything that's got to happen, everything that, that needs to happen so that in, in Isaiah 61 can be fulfilled in Jesus, everything that that needs to happen there to set the captives free to give sight to the blind, can't be done by just another prophet. Can't be done by just another teacher. Can't be done by just another priest. It's got to be done by no less than God Himself. Because only God has the power to redeem us from the sin that we are in. Only God has the power to give sight back to the blind. And so John says, look, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, but he is also God in the flesh. When we think of the Gospel of John, what do we think of? We think of John 1, which is what? Telling us that Jesus is God in the flesh. And here he closes and says, the purpose that I'm writing is so that you know that Jesus is God. He starts off his Gospel saying, Jesus is God. Because the only way that we're going to be saved... It's if God steps out of heaven and redeems us. And Jesus says, I'm writing that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And not only that, he says, I write so that you may have life. That by believing, you may have life. For the hundred times that John uses the word believe He never uses the word belief. He never uses the word belief. Because every single time, he wants to drive us over and over and over and over to believing in Jesus. Not just having some kind of belief, because everybody has a belief about Jesus. Go ask anybody on the street, hey, what is your belief about Jesus? And people will give you an answer. I don't believe he even existed. I have a belief that he's not a real person. I have a belief that everything that is written about him in the New Testament is a myth. I have a belief. Everybody has a belief about Jesus. John's point is not to get us to have another belief, but believe in him so that through him we may have life. See, just a belief in Jesus does not guarantee life. Because everybody does. Everybody has a belief about Jesus. But not everybody believes in Jesus. And that is the difference for John. He does not say that by belief you will have life, but by believing you may have life. Everybody wants life. (laughs) Everybody wants to live And everybody, when we think about it, even those who say they have no belief system, crave and desire and wants there to be something more than the years on this earth. Everybody looks for meaning beyond the now. Well, we know a very staggering statistic, do we not? One out of one, people die. So if you want something beyond the here and the now, the life on this earth, where are you going to find it? Is it even possible? Everybody wants it. So how do you get it? John says you get it by believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That by believing, you may have life in his name. His name, is the, his name is what gives you life. Because God gave him the name that is above all names. Who stepped out of heaven, took on the, the form of a humble servant, went to the cross for our sins, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. See, it is through His name that we have life. Not just here and now, but in what is to come after we die. John says Jesus gives you that life. And just look around today. People are are, are trying to, to find life by believing in systems. By believing in stuff, by believing in, in politics and politicians and philosophies and, and, and philosophers, and say, in, in, in the irreligious, right? Even the ones who say, "Well, I'm, I love this, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual." You know what that means, right? They've elevated themselves as God. They believe in themselves to be God. Everybody is looking to believe in something that's going to give them life. And John says the only way, the only way that you can have that life is through believing in Jesus Christ. Believing in the one through whom the wrath of God has been removed. By believing in the one who reconciles you back to God. By believing in the one who guarantees you eternal life with God in heaven. And that one. And there is only one. There are not many ways, there are not many teachers, there are not many philosophers, there are not many systems, but there is one and only one who will give you life. And John says, I write that you can have life because through what I have written, you are believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what John writes. That's why he writes. And as we read that and we understand it and we think about who we are as a church, what is the mission of Red Bank? What is the mission of the church? Well, yes, we have the great commission, which is to go and make disciples. How do we make disciples? Because we tell them what? What John writes right here. I know so many people would say that John 3.16 is, is, is one of the most important verses in the Bible, and I absolutely agree. It's very important. And the Great Commission is very important. I would also suggest to you this morning that John 20, verse 30 through 31 is just as important. Because in everything else you see in the Bible, you can come back to John, 30, John 20, verse 30. Because the purpose of God's Word to us, is that he has sent the Anointed One, the Messiah, to redeem us and reconcile back to him. And so that through his Messiah, through Jesus Christ, we can have life. And that is why, John. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.